And would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart bring you praise. Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us uh, this morning that uh, we would gladly receive the good things you have for us through your word. To the glory of your name and to the good of this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we are continuing in our series on these six verses in Acts, uh, really exploring an important connection, the connection between the finished work of Jesus and the formation of his church, of this one new people we call the church. Now, we're accustomed to calling the book that I just read from the, uh, the book of Acts, but it's always good to remember that what it, what it is really is Luke 2, Luke volume 2. It's a continuation of Luke's first volume, uh, which we call the Gospel of Luke. And I, I imagine that if you had the chance to meet Luke, uh, just having finished the book that bears his name, telling him, man, I just finished your book, I especially love the end, where Jesus ascended into heaven and everyone who witnessed it worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with joy and were continually in the temple blessing God, uh, I imagine that he would give you a funny look and say, you know, I'm sorry, but that wasn't the end. That was the middle. <laughs> you need to keep reading. You need to pick up volume two. So we're, we're reading on in the story of Jesus. We're looking at how his story continues in the story of the church. Still contending, in other words, with what it means that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that his name will be called Jesus and that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We're still wrestling through that. So to borrow a phrase from Winston Churchill, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. So we're hunkering down in these verses uh, as, as a kind of a grid through which we can see more clearly uh, the saving work of Jesus as that which sustains the life of his body, uh, the church, uh, with a mind to thinking about our calling as Christ Church Santa Fe to this particular place, this particular time, and among this particular, and some might say, peculiar people, Right? So we started off last week uh, focused on what it means to be devoted, what it means to be a devoted church. Uh, and we ended with a focus on the four things to which the church was devoted. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this morning we're going to be looking at the first of these distinctives, uh, what it means to be a church devoted to the apostles' teaching with a particular eye to its centrality, the centrality of the apostles' teaching, the, the continuity of the apostles' teaching, and finally, uh, the consequences of the apostles' teaching. Now, as we do this, we need to stay firmly tethered to this idea of devotion, in no small part because the church we're reading about here did that very thing. They were devoted. It's significant, I think, that before Luke gets to the particulars of, of what the church did, he notes the posture of what the church was, right? A devoted church. And, and, and again, I mean, this is a little bit of a review, but, but devotion isn't theology. It's not really behavior. It's, it's not mission, vision, values. 
I've wrestled this week with how best to describe it, but I think we're getting closest to it when we understand that devotion is simply that quality at the center of a person or at the center of a people whose hearts have been melted by the love of Jesus. That's what it means to be devoted. That's what it means in this context, at least. There's a little phrase in counseling circles you may know, and it goes like this, hurt people hurt people, right? Um, If you're hurt, uh, you you tend to hurt others. Um, True enough. But to kind of flip it around and apply it here, what Luke is describing here is something like loved people love people. Uh, People loved by God love God. So, so before the church got to the doing, it was being. Uh, being loved, knowing that there's never a time that God, through Jesus Christ, is not loving them. And so that at the center of its life was this, we're, we're, we're melted hearts, okay? Hearts melted by the deep, ongoing, moving apprehension that they are a people who've been saved. Loved unto salvation. Loved unto eternity. Now, that doesn't mean you're not doing anything, Um, having your heart melted by Jesus moves you. Uh, It moves you out of yourself toward love and service to God and to your community. Uh, In fact, if there is no doing, no works that grow from faith, that's an indication that faith may not even be present, right? In fact, I suspect this book is called Acts because it's full of action. Uh, Actions that ensue from faith, and, and when you know you've been loved with the deep, deep love of Jesus, you know not only that you do not have to earn anything from him, but in fact, you can endure anything for him, right? That's a part of devotion as well, isn't it? Uh, there's a kind of a grit that comes along with devotion, an ability to press on, an ability to take a lot of trouble, um, to suffer, to endure, Uh, Because you know that the love you've received is that lavish. It is that undeserved. It has changed you that deeply. It is working through you so that the inconveniences and the pressures and the difficulties and the suffering, when those come your way, inevitably, as a Christian in the life of the church, you don't just bail because because you have the love of Jesus. That kind of makes you able to endure just about anything, Right? Now, the dynamic I'm describing here is actually described in the Bible itself. In John's first letter, for example, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for what? Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's a description of the heart-melting love that moves you. John's like, know this, if you love Jesus, if you're devoted to him, that is a result of something. That's the result of God's love for you. Not that you loved God, not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us. Isn't that amazing? And among the primary consequences of being loved by God is, is devotion to what's called here the apostles' teaching. Um, Now, now to understand what this is, it's helpful to break it down a little bit, uh, paying attention to the first word of that little two-word term. It's not just the teaching, right? It's the apostles' teaching. We started off this series by looking at how devotion touched every aspect of life in the church, and in a similar way, so does this apostles' thing. 
Everything going on here, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers, are in some sense to be understood as apostolic. Uh, In fact, it's the apostolic nature of the church that distinguishes it from every other kind of group, every other kind of entity, every other kind of religion that does the stuff that's described here, right? I mean, I've I've had a chance in my life to visit synagogues and Hindu temples and gurdwaras and wards and all kinds of other places of worship covering all kinds of religions. And you know what's going on in all of them? Teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. (laughs) Pretty much. But what makes all of that unique and uniquely powerful in the life of the church is that all those things are understood as apostolic. We confess this pretty much, we confess this every week here, don't we? Pretty much. I mean, affirming that we believe in what? One holy Catholic or universal and apostolic church. So what exactly does apostolic mean? Well, I, let, me, let me tell you what it means by beginning to tell you what it doesn't mean. Uh, so let's look at this second word. Luke says the church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's a teaching. So we can say for starters that they weren't devoted to an apostolic position or an apostolic person. They were devoted to the apostolic teaching. And even though this was a unique age in which God was working through this unique office of the apostles as it was being established so that scripture was being conveyed to the church through many of them by the Holy Spirit, the church didn't look to particular person, a particular person or persons or a position of one who might claim to have taken the apostolic office so that the life in the church would come to be founded upon and directed by, you know, the various pronouncements and judgments of that particular person who occupies that particular office, right? So that, in essence, they embody something like the Bible, No, the apostolic church was founded on the apostolic teaching, which is to say it received the historic witness of the apostles so that the historic gospel we have in the scripture conveyed through the writings of real people as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as Peter himself writes in his first letter. And that idea of being a witness is really important. What what do witnesses do? They tell you what they saw. They tell you what they heard, what they experienced as accurately as possible because they were there. You're not not a good witness if you take the stand and say, well, you know, I know we're talking about this situation, but actually I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I didn't hear anything about it. Um, You know, but but all the same, I'm going to make a few pronouncements and I'm going to weigh in on, on how I feel about this thing. That's not a good witness. That's not a witness at all, but the the apostles bear witness, right? They bear witness to the historic event of the good news of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 16, when Jesus zeroes in on Peter and asks him, who do you say that I am? Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter expresses the gospel in that very short, potent answer. And Jesus answers and says to Peter, Beloved are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus is rejoicing there. He's rejoicing at Peter's answer. 
And that's what he's rejoicing in. He is pointing, he is pointing to that, what, what in particular he's pointing to as that which the Father in heaven has revealed, which stands as the rock upon which, the church, which he'll build his church, is not the person of Peter. Not the particular office one might imagine Peter to occupy. He's, he's rejoicing in Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's rejoicing in the apostles' teaching as the rock, as the firm foundation upon which the church will be built and stand so that not even the gates of hell will prevail, prevail against it. it. It goes without saying that Peter, like all of us, would have made not a great rock upon which to build a church. He actually demonstrates that in the Bible in no uncertain terms, not just before Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, but well after it. Not only that, but you don't find a place in the Bible where, any, where the apostles are deferring to one person as the rock of the church. They all relate as equals, equal enough for later on Paul to confront Peter publicly when he found him straying from what? The church's rock, the gospel, the apostles' teaching. He said, I confronted him publicly because he was to be blamed, because he'd gone astray. And loving him in that way, he brought him back to the church's rock, the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching, the gospel, was and remains central to the life in the church. And, and part of what it means to be that it's central is to agree about its content. There, there's kind of a popular view out there, and I think we just sort of think, you know, we're in this mindset that, you know, if things are old, they're not as well-developed and sophisticated as they are now, right? We have this kind of default view of, uh, that, that uh, things ought to evolve. Well, you know, there's, so there's this popular view uh, that the early days of the church were the evolving days of the church as it, as it related to the gospel. That in those early centuries, they were sort of figuring out what the gospel was. That there was like fundamental disagreements about the person and work of Jesus until the, the powers finally prevailed and established the one true faith. But that view is, is, is simply not true. One of the interesting things, I think, to consider is how the Bible is full of dozens and dozens of summaries of the gospel, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. So, you know, passages like Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a good gospel summary. Or Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Romans 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Or 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to the himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Or 2 Timothy 2, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Or 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins for once, for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Broad agreement on the gospel as to its content. So why are there all these summaries of, script, of, of the gospel in the scriptures? Because there was agreement as to its centrality and its content. So that they were always going back to the apostles' teaching as the solution to whatever may be going on in the church, whatever may be afflicting it, whatever they're rejoicing in, regularly repeating it, regularly reminding them of it, re-articulating it, reapplying it to every situation and contingency because the gospel's central. 
Because it's the answer to everything. Is there discouragement in the church? There's encouragement in the gospel. Is there conflict in the church? There's reconciliation in the gospel. Is there sin in the church? Are there wounds in the church? There's healing in the gospel. There's forgiveness in the gospel. Is there hopelessness in the church? There's hope in the gospel. Is there brokenness? There's wholeness in the gospel. Does everything seem dead in the church? There's life in the gospel. And of course, you know, um, churches aren't perfect, but the mere existence of disagreement and problems in the church doesn't mean there was confusion about the gospel. It only means that, and I know this is going to shock everyone, there were a lot of sinners in the church. And that when the inevitable problems arose, they sorted them out by doing what? Relying on the apostles' teaching as the rock upon which the church stands. And that's not to say that just because the church wasn't evolving in its understanding of the content of the gospel, it wasn't contending with its magnitude. It certainly was. The church spent the first three centuries essentially working out the implications of what God had done through Jesus Christ in the formation and the writing of the creeds, deepening their understanding of it, thinking through it in fresh ways and new ways of articulating it, thinking about how to apply it uh, to the culture to which they've been called and unify around it as a people. You know, and, and we're still doing that, right? We're still contending with its magnitude without messing with the contents, on Easter, Greg preached uh, on 1 Corinthians 15, the text where Paul reminds the church of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's Paul saying there? That the gospel is the most important thing in the church. A matter of first importance. Because by it, we're received. We're able to stand. We're being saved. Otherwise, he says, we're believing in vain. He puts it even more forcefully to the Galatians where he contemplates what might it look like if it weren't regarded as the rock upon which the church stands, if it weren't regarded as a matter of first importance. He tells them, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's quite a thing to contemplate. The, the, the death of Christ as being for nothing. Nothing at all. So we, when, when we consider what the church is and what it's called to do, before you get to the partic your particular tradition, and there are many wonderful traditions, or the particular place to which you've been called, which are you know, wildly diverse. We talked about global missions earlier, or missions or programs, or what kind of people you may have on your hands. The church must be as a matter of first importance, the place where the apostles' teaching, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to its life. I think this is why the apostles' teaching is not just found on this list in Acts 2, but it's first on the list in Acts 2. And it's first because it's foundational, because it must undergird and infuse everything in the life of the ministry of the church, lest we believe in vain. So it makes sense that there was a lot of energy dedicated to seeing that this gospel, which was central, would continue, would be passed on faithfully. So Paul, you know, writes his protege, Timothy, instructing him to make sure that he adopts a catalytic, attractional model of ministry that will ensure maximum influence and attendance. No, that's not what he did. 
Paul, in fact, does not commend ministry techniques to Timothy. He commends the teaching. He reminds him of its contents, of its centrality, and he says, continue in it faithfully. Deliver it to the church. He urges him, follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within. Listen to this. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in my presence of many witnesses, do what? Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He puts this to Timothy again, in fact, telling him in another place to command and teach these things, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And then he goes on, keep a close watch on yourself and on what? The teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I suspect it's because of this commitment to continuity as much as anything that we might call this the apostles' teaching, not because they wrote it up, but because they received it as witnesses to it, and we're called to pass it on faithfully. And you know what happens when church command and teach these things, when they immerse themselves in these things and persist in these things and hold these things dear? Um, good things. Good things happen. Church is committed to the centrality and continuity of the gospel, see consequences for the church. And now, now, I'm not going to lie to you. Not all the consequences are good. Or, or maybe I should say not all of them are easy. A commitment to the gospel will mean trouble. It just, it, it will. Uh, the earliest Christians, the Christians we're reading about here, uh, found this out by saying nothing more than Jesus is Lord. Sounds so tame to us today, doesn't it? Jesus is Lord. But in a world where pretty much everyone agreed that Caesar was Lord, that meant trouble for the church to proclaim the gospel, the truth of it. Because to claim Jesus as Lord, to identify as a citizen of the kingdom, pretty much guarantees that the world which looks to other lords and identifies with other kingdoms will regard you as a traitor. And that's just for starters. The test of the reality of the sin, to, the, to its depth and damage, to our participation in it, to the need for repentance, for forgiveness... To, to a better life than what we might make for ourselves, uh, to riches that can't be earned from ourselves, to an identity that, that, that is grounded in Christ and nowhere else. You know, for some, that's, that's the stuff of life. For some, that, that'll be like the stuff of death. So, you know, if you never endure any trouble at all, I do think it's reasonable to wonder if the gospel is as central as we might imagine, Right? Jesus, in fact, guarantees that troubles will come. He's very clear on this in his first sermon. He, he, he actually says, you know, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter says something similar in his first letter. He tells the church not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But again, here's the word of rejoicing. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. And look, that, that's not to say churches don't suffer for other reasons. We do. 
Churches and church people sometimes suffer, frankly, because, you know, we're just obnoxious. We're offensive. We're combative. We're rude. We're unloving. We're spiteful. We're self-righteous. And I could go on and on and on. That's why Paul urges in Romans 12 that if possible, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, the, I don't know, I mean, the John Standridge authorized version might go something like this. So far as it depends on you, don't be a jerk. I mean, it's good to think about, isn't it, what we're putting in people's path. What are we putting in front of them? And let's be honest, Christians are famous for, maybe notorious, for putting all kinds of things in people's path, which we say, you must embrace this, you must, you must pick this up and carry it, or, you know, as, as that which is vital to your life, when it isn't. When all we're called to put in front of people is the teaching, the apostles' teaching, the gospel, leaving it to the Lord. And with all that said, the greater consequence, I think, of centering on and continuing in the apostles' teaching is growth, all kinds of growth. And I do mean all kinds. It's typical to, to talk about church growth pretty much in terms of numbers. Um, and, and while numerical growth is certainly part of what the Bible says will happen, it's not all that will happen. In fact, I'd like to take it a little further and say numerical growth isn't even really the bottom line of how church growth is spoken of in the Bible. It's, it's really more of a byproduct. The, the book of Acts, of course, is a church about growth. It's full of accounts of mass conversions and thousands being added here and a few more thousand over there. But, but if you can believe it, the headline in the book of Acts is not really numerical growth. The really exciting stuff, the real action in terms of growth is what Luke calls again and again in the second volume, this book of Acts, growth of the word, growth in the word. So in Acts 6, he says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. And Acts 12, on the heels of the death of Herod, it said that even, very tough, even in the midst of very tough circumstances, the word of God increased and multiplied. And it's not just an Acts. Growth in the word is treated as the real exciting stuff all over the Bible, so that the ministries by which the church is built up and grows are what Paul calls in Ephesians 4, growth in the ministry of the Word. Numerical growth is the fruit, but, but the root is the Word, is the good news of Jesus. And you can't have fruit without the root. You can't have fruit without a healthy, robust ever-growing, ever-more-deeply-penetrating root of the gospel getting out into the church, going deeper and deeper into us. Growth in the Word, I think, is celebrated, and it is the focus, because apart from it, growth is actually impossible. Good growth. And, and you know, churches are kind of famous for confusing root and fruit. You know, we aim for growth, and and, and we, you aim for growth and you miss the gospel instead of aiming for the gospel and guaranteeing growth. So we're called to be vigilant, not to be more concerned with results than with relying on the Lord, or more passionate about, you know, kind of the moving targets of relevance than we are about biblical faithfulness, more concerned with pleasing people than the Lord, right? I mean, that, this is how it happens. 
And what we find when we focus on the root, when our great treasure is the word of God, when its roots are penetrating more deeply into our life together and more deeply into us as individuals, you actually find that you can relax. You can be joyful in knowing that Jesus is at work through the gospel and you can leave the fruit to him. So the prevailing passion in Scripture is gospel growth in us and among us, growth in our love for it, in our knowledge of it, in the ways it defines how we live so that it's kept central, so that it's continually passed on, so that we bear witness to the beautiful consequences of it. That's the power of what it means to be the apostolic church devoted to the apostolic teaching. I started off this morning just with a reminder that we're in volume two of Luke's gospel, and I thought we could maybe end by going to the beginning of the first volume, to the account of John the Baptist leaping for joy in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus, in, in his mother's womb. And, and, I, and I, think Jesus, I think Luke actually does something like that in our text. He makes this connection. He, he actually uses the same exact word to describe John's joy in the womb at the presence of Jesus to the joy a very young, you could even say in utero church has when they come together in fellowship with each other and with Jesus, devoted to the apostles' teachings so that the result was, in verse 46, glad and generous hearts. John the Baptist leapt for joy at the presence of Jesus, and so does the church. You see, what John and the church have in common is that when Jesus is in our midst, when his gospel is present and central and is the foundation and life of the church, there is life. And with it, deep, infectious joy, joy that grows out, of, out to joy in the world, joy that bears fruit. So let's remember that as we come to his table, rejoicing in Jesus, thanking him for the good news of the gospel that has given us life. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us, a love which, if we're understanding the gospel, if we've received it, melts our hearts and moves us, moves us to serve you, moves us to worship. Lord, we do pray um, that we would rejoice in your word, that we would delight that you have given us not merely news, although you could have just given us news, uh, but you've given us good news. You've given us the good news that, um, that the law which was crushing us has been fulfilled by Jesus, that the sins which were accounted to us deservingly, which would have separated us from you eternally, Jesus bore the penalty that should have fallen upon us on the cross, and that because of our great King Jesus' death, the final enemy has been defeated. And he can no longer snatch us away from you. But instead, we have received eternal life. And here we go to the table. Not bringing offerings. Not saying, you know, please love me. Uh, please pay attention to me. Please uh, feed me. Um, but instead, we come, uh, Lord, just ready to receive ready to receive the good things that you have on offer for us here and now, that we would be fed spiritually as we go out into our week with a life that is too much for us, but a life in which you are present and at work, 
but also as a foretaste, as an appetizer for the life to come when we will be seated with you, our great king, when every tear will be dried, where death will be no more, where we will be gathered with you around your table, enjoying the richest affair, rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. Attend to us at this meal, we pray. It's in his name. Amen.